You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the big show, coast to coast to coast in the great country, the greatest country in the world, I would say. Where else would you rather be? Look around. There's beautiful places. I don't want to disparage any, but what other passport would you like to carry than this than this passport? None for me. Now, if you said to me, well, well, Evan, if you love it so much, I'll give you a free trip to Switzerland. Would you? Yes, I'll go. Evan, you can have a free trip to Tokyo and spend a month. I would take it. But I wouldn't give up this passport for anything. In the current world, and we're going to talk about the current world today on the big show. We're going to talk about the mega droughts all over the world. The United States is drying up. If you are in the southwest of the United States, it's unbelievable. Lake Mead in California, Vegas, Nevada. That whole area is drying up. All over Europe, you're walking across parts of like the Rhine River. They're discovering lost ancient artifacts as lakes and waterways are drying up. This is a nightmare. The world will be looking at us because we have water and lots of it. Lakes and lakes and lakes that we barely value. They are priceless. And they will be coming increasingly priceless. The Great Lakes, the lungs in the middle of North America. And just, we are going to dig, Dan Riskin's going to drop by. We're going to talk about the droughts. We're going to talk about some DNA and resurrecting, like essentially a Jurassic Park thing. But I really want to dig into this. I've said this on this program before. The drought is the most underreported and most significant, and I think most socially significant story. This is going, you know, Americans are going to be, People around the world will do this, but let's talk about our neighbors down south because they're going to look north. They're not watering their lawns. They're going to be rationing their showers. Water, 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 water is going to be a major issue. So we'll talk about that today. And that makes our passport even more valuable. But what would make it more valuable if, if, you know, the taxes we paid went further, like actually helped our healthcare system, Ontario today. And we'll dig into this because it, Every province is facing the same health care crunch. If you're listening to us in Quebec, you know it. In BC, you know it. In Alberta, you know it. In Sask, you know it. Throughout the Maritimes, you know it. We need more beds, more nurses, more doctors. And the answer is tricky. Because there is going to be a discussion, as they had in Quebec, after the Chow Louis decision, you might think, what is that? That was a a court decision in Quebec that said if there's no, there's too much of a delay in service, that service can be delivered privately. That opened the door in Quebec to private health care, which is why you can get an MRI where I live across the river and pay 500 bucks for an MRI. In Ontario, you got to wait months. And that's why they're in Quebec. Look, there's a shortage of public MRI machines. What's the incentive if you're in Quebec and you're the government 
to put tens of millions of dollars into public accessible MRI machines when the private system is covering it. Now, if you're poor in Quebec and you got to pay for an MRI, good luck. Good luck. It's expensive. And the wait times in Quebec for a free MRI are much longer because they don't care. They're, they're looking at that. There's lots of private MRI machines there. There's no wait for them. So they're allocating their money to different parts of the system. So today, Ontario has decided that they have a plan to stay open, as they call it, to have more beds. Okay. More beds. Sounds good. Can, can I tell you the facts? There's not a bed shortage. Ontario's not facing a bed shortage. It's not like a, the beds aren't the semiconductor of the healthcare system. In a, we have a body shortage, nurse shortage, doctor shortage. Nurses have been saying, you know the best way to get more nurses? Pay them more. There's a bill in Ontario called Bill 124 that they want repealed. They want nurses to get, you know what? You tell me. I mean, if you're a free-thinking, conservative-slash-liberal economic thinker, don't prices dictate behavior? If you gave a raise to a certain job where you need people, don't you think more people would go there? Yeah. Wages attract talent. Isn't that what it's all about? But the Ontario government says, you know what, we can do this. Um... Surgeries can be performed in private providers. They'll still be covered by OHIP to take the pressure off the healthcare system. So we'll deal with that today. And is this the beginning of private healthcare or not? Or should it be? Why don't we go there and have these discussions? One, one thing about the, the healthcare discussion, it's very passionate, and it should be. But there should be no, nothing off limits. Canadians are a mature citizenry we pay a lot of money for this there should be real studies about but they should be studies based on values look if i was in a health crisis or if you were in a health crisis you'd pay anything to get help of course if my loved one was in a health crisis i would want to pay but that's not is that a fair system what if you were in a position under the veil of ignorance where you could not pay go to the united states Whip out your credit card. When my father was sick and he was getting palliative care, the system was unbelievable. And we didn't have to pull out a credit card to get it. People in the States go bankrupt when they're sick. Working class people. So let's be very careful before we say, well, the answer is the market. If the answer is the market to privatize, isn't the market also the answer to increase wages for nurses? Can you have it both ways? Can you say the the market, we should privatize more, but not increase wages? Well, that's not a market signal. But then if you increase wages, do you have to privatize? No, I don't. So these these are questions about values that we will have. Now, I want to say something quick in the last three minutes, because there is breaking news... And I want to quickly comment on it because I think this is important. Many of you are churchgoers or synagogue goers or mosque goers. Religion and institutional religion is part of your life. 
of course, the Catholic Church, since the Pope's tour here, has been in the spotlight of, over the apology and the admission that a genocide took place in the residential schools, although most indigenous leaders have said it's not enough, there's not enough compensation, the records haven't been released, but it was a step. But today, Pope Francis, through his office, said there's insufficient evidence to open up a canonical investigation for, of sexual assault against who? Cardinal Mark Willette. And the Quebec Cardinal Mark Willette, who was once in line to be the Pope. Now, let me just say this. How do they know there's not enough evidence to open up an investigation when there is a woman identified as F who has accused the Cardinal of sexual assault of several incidents between 2008 and 2010? And that there is a clearly a lawsuit a class action lawsuit introduced this last week with similar allegations against many other members. Given the church's history here, given that there's credible allegations, given that there's detailed allegations, why is it that the without even hearing it, they already said, well, there's not enough evidence to open up an investigation? Well, someone has come forward with a credible with a law firm with a credible story about the cardinal. I don't know if he's innocent or guilty. I'm not suggesting that. Isn't that enough to at least investigate the idea that the, they already said there's insufficient evidence to open up an investigation can lead to cynicism and the accusation, once again, that people are getting stonewalled. That's not a good look. We'll take a break. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. Well, we love Christine Sinclair. Why? Because she is the best of the best. She's just a gold medalist, a two-time Olympic bronze medalist, uh, four Olympics. She's uh, a legend. I, I don't know how many. Uh, yesterday, I think Christine Sinclair joins me. Christine, I know we were going to talk yesterday. I outlined your resume on the show yesterday like it was like the entire show. I could have gone through every <laughs> game. I think I went through every – I was like, okay, here's where she scored this goal. Here's where oh, she God. Do you read – first of all, welcome to the show. Hi. Hey, thanks for having me. Just going. This is like the all Christine Sinclair show now. No, just it's all good. It. No, no. What is the humble bit? Like, why do you not let us celebrate the legacy and the achievement? Like, it is good. We like it. <laughs> Watching you were like highlights of our live. Do you feel modest about that? I, you can talk about it. I just don't need to listen to it. Do you hate it? No, <laughs> seriously. Are you, are you blushing right now? I'm like, I'm obviously proud of what I've achieved um, and what my team has achieved. But yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just not me. Like, okay. So I, how I do you deal with it. it? Like, like how do I, I mean, I mean, it's in a serious way because, um, you know, if I go through your resume, right, as you know, the 14-time winner of the Canada Soccer Player of the Award, you know, 20 seasons, like you, you hold every record, 
um, five FIFA World Cups. Like, is it hard now for you to to kind of revel in that, or do you, do you have a hard time hand? Like, you know, this is like talking to the Beatles, and they're like, I don't want to talk about. It. But you, you're the Beatles of this, man. Oh, I don't know if I'm a Beatle, but <laughs> um, no, I think I think honestly, when I'm done playing, it'll be something I'll look back on and be like, okay, that was pretty cool. That was a good ride. Um, but while I'm still playing, it's just. Yeah, I'm just I I like to play and then like separate myself from it. Um How would you describe Well, tell me how you describe your leadership strategy and style. Like Christine Sinclair like you are a leader. How what is how would you describe your leadership style? Um I'm definitely not the rah-rah person. That's not my job. Uh I tend to lead by example. Um, I'll speak up when I, when I need to. Um, but I think my biggest role is to help create a culture where everyone can be a leader and everyone can like feel the most important and the biggest part of the team. Um, and I think that's, yeah, what we have on the national team and what's helped us be successful. Did you always know that you were a, a straight sports stud like I know you loved it but were you pegged as a gifted athlete from the beginning uh, yeah you were <laughs> as much as, like you know I unfortunately yeah I um obviously excelled at soccer baseball track volleyball basketball like I played it all I did it all um you love baseball I, I know you you wanted to have Robbie Alomar's number the great blue jay um, yeah. did you ever have thoughts of baseball versus soccer or was it always soccer? It, 100%. Um, it was, I, I actually thought baseball was my thing. Oh, <laughs> um, really? So you could, oh, so what happened? Well, baseball and soccer started to like overlap in the summer, um, with like provincial team stuff. So I had to make a decision and at the time, I, I was like the only girl on the boys' baseball team, and it just—it was clear that soccer was going to be my sport at that point. But in terms of what I loved, um, it, it was a coin toss. I'm not going to lie, but I mean, soccer—I excelled at more than the other sports, and it came very naturally to me. Is that right? Well, because I hear stories of, well, I was, everyone's been cut and everyone, like, I'm like, ah, um, like, don't get me wrong. I've had to work extremely hard and, like, spent my childhood with a soccer ball on my feet. Um, but it's. But do you ever talk to, like, Haley Wickenheiser or Clara Hughes, two sport athletes, right? Speed skating yeah. and cyclists for Clara, softball, obviously, and hockey for Haley. Um you ever say like god maybe i should have done that maybe i should have done the baseball soccer thing well no no i think i've made the right choice um just because especially with baseball like there wasn't a future for women in baseball you know what i mean like even though at the time when i was like 13 i was convinced i was going to be the first female in the big leagues um but it just obviously wasn't something that was there and available Hmm. (laughs) Uh, I'm speaking to Christine Sinclair. I, I want to get at what makes a great athlete and, and, you know, having coached and played a lot of sports and, and love sports, but 
yesterday, um, we did a long segment on athletes using their platform to speak up. Now, I know you're here to celebrate the ANW 14th Annual Burgers to Beat MS Day in support of MS Research. And the Burgers to Beat MS Day, I think it's very cool. You've done it for 14 years, as you say, and for every teen burger sold, Burgers to Beat MS, two boxes donated to MS Society of Canada. And I know, obviously, uh, for you, you have a close family member who uh, was challenged very profoundly by MS. Um, how do you decide, uh, like, so that's important to you. How do you decide what to use your platform and why this? Um, well, I think, so for the longest time in my career, it was just, uh, I was just a soccer player. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and then, so my mom was diagnosed with MS 40 and unfortunately passed away earlier this year due to complications from the disease. And, Six years ago, ANW and the MS Society um, approached me, and they had heard my story through the grapevine um, and wanted to know if it was something I wanted to lend my voice to. And I'm very much an introvert. My family is very, um, like, close-knit and tight and uh, private. Um, so I remember asking my mom's permission to share her story because this is ultimately her story. Mm-hmm. And after the first year, she said, she's like, I've never been more proud of you. Um, and that's when I realized, like, soccer is great. Soccer is amazing. You can inspire some kids and inspire Canada. And But to truly make a difference is something different. And... uh MS obviously hits close to home and it made perfect sense and it's something I'm very passionate about and will continue to support and fundraise and bring awareness to because um, I, I, ideally there comes a day where families mm. don't have to go through what my family has gone through. Speaking to Christine Sinclair, first of all, sorry about the, the loss of your mom. I lost my dad uh, nine months ago. I know, I know th- that year, right? The year oh, after the loss of a parent is, it's, yep. it's just like, for me, I just feel this presence and absence all the time, right? I feel his loss and yep. I feel his presence. And it's this weird shadow play of a presence and an absence when you lose a parent. And uh, so, mm-hmm. I, so I'm feeling what you're feeling because it's, uh-huh. uh, it's not easy, is it? And, and, and no, no matter how old easy. you are, it, um, so I'm sorry for your loss. And <laughs> oh, I know, I think I'm in the same room with you and they're, uh, <laughs> feeling the same thing. Um, I love that you're doing this. I love that you're you're, you're doing this, um, the 14th annual Burgers to Beat MS Day. Um, and I know that you're an introvert and you're modest about it, but your deeds speak so loudly, both on the field and now off the field. And I love that I force you to come on here to do this. And I know you're probably like, I hate doing it. No, it's all good. <laughs> you're like, Evan's calling again. <laughs> I love having you on, Christine. Keep inspiring. Good luck. Keep playing. Uh, you know I'll always have you back, um, and, and thanks for your adv- advocacy. Uh, you're just you're just an awesome person, Christine Sinclair, and and your your actions are always louder than your words. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. You too. That's Christine Sinclair. Um, and you, if you can text me at seven ten ten, a finer example of an athlete who does speaks by your deeds. Go for it. We got a great story next.
strong views, powerful opinions. The Evan Solomon Show continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here in Canada, Hockey Canada is under fire because they did nothing when there were allegations of sexual abuse except pay everyone off and hush it up. Now they're in deep trouble. Gymnastics Canada is facing the same thing. But hold my beer, says the NFL. The NFL has just suspended a guy. You may not have heard of him. His name is Deshaun Watson. He's the new quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. And he's suspended for 11 games, and he's fined $5 million. Now, you might think, why? Oh, it's okay. Just 30 different women have come forward with claims that he sexually assaulted and harassed them during massage sessions. And he's paid them all off, or some of them. He settled, I think, 30 claims confidentially with money. And then after that, there's still 24 women in separate lawsuits who are accusing Watson of unbelievable stuff, exposing himself. Touching them with his private parts. But it doesn't matter. The Cleveland Browns then signed him to a multi-year contract. It's so big. $230 million. And here's the worst part. Well, the best part, if you're Deshaun Watson, it's guaranteed money. So this guy's got a five-year guaranteed $230 million contract. And now they're, they're finding him 11 games. Uh, You can sit out 11 games and uh, $5 million, which is nothing to him. That's nothing to him. And then he's going to go play? I'm so disgusted by this. I had to bring on someone who maybe I don't understand it. Maybe Eric Macromella, the TSN Forbes legal analyst, the partner at Gowlings, the host of the nationally syndicated radio show Offside, can explain to me what the hell is going on here. So my good friend Eric, who knows everything about everything, is here. What am I missing here? Well, wait, there's more, as Ron Popeil would say, that when he was traded from the Houston Texans to Cleveland Browns, he still had one year left on his deal at $30-plus million. The Cleveland Browns allowed him to renegotiate the value of that, of that last year, which would be the first year of his deal with the Browns, from $30 million to $1 million. So when and if, and he was guaranteed he'd be suspended, the, um, by virtue of being suspended with a far lower uh, amount in the first year, going from $30 million to about $1 million and change, he would barely lose any money. He'd go from losing about $11.6 million to about two hundred and fifty grand. Um, what are you missing here? You're not really missing a lot. And the one thing I would also add is, Apart from the 26 civil lawsuits, 24 of which have settled, one of which was withdrawn, and one is pending, Deshaun Watson also, via Instagram, DM'd 66 different, different massage therapists over 17 months. And in each of those messages, he didn't care whether they were qualified as massage therapists, but just wanted to ensure that the therapy sessions were, quote, private. So overall, though, are we surprised at what we're seeing here, 11-game settlement? No, because the second Deshaun Watson finally apologized after two years last week, he's never apologized to that point, said he's done nothing wrong. That, to me, was the signal that this would settle. Uh, the NFL doesn't want this to go to court and drag on like it did with Ezekiel Elliott, like it did with Tom Brady and the Flategate. The NFL wants to dispose of this matter, and they're taking the position 
uh, in this case, on they're, they're taking the position that, look, we're not a court of law. There are civil lawsuits. There was an criminal investigation. This is being governed by a workplace policy. We discipline players in these circumstances, not because we're a court, but because we want to preserve the goodwill and reputation of our league. So we will impose discipline. This is a business decision, not a moral decision, not an ethical decision. In this case here, the bottom line is the bottom line. If you are unsatisfied with the result, well, you are likely not alone because Deshaun Watson's behavior was nothing short of predatory. But from a legal standpoint, 11 games, I hate to say it, is a reasonable suspension because it honors past practice and precedent which you need to do if you are in this business. Okay, I'm speaking to Eric Macromella, TSN Forbes legal analyst, partner at Gowling. So he's a lawyer, he knows sports, nationally syndicated radio show Offside, which is, by the way, awesome. He's talking about Deshaun Watson, the, now the new Cleveland Browns quarterback. He was traded from the Texans. The Knowing that there was 24, 26 allegations, he's settlement, uh, he, this is a guy that in his time, he was, as you say, using Instagram to text like 66 different massage therapists, uh, didn't care if they were qualified. This stuff is, uh, the, the allegations are disgusting. He's, he's a multimillionaire, so he's paid everyone off to silence them. Let's give, let, I can't even believe I'm saying this, but Eric, let's give the NFL a pass based on your def- your, your rationale of it, right? Past practices, we're not a court of law, $5 million, 11 games, you know, in the, in the, in the context, that's serious. Let's talk about the Cleveland idiotic Browns who are destroying their franchise. Now, I know it's a hard mm-hmm. luck franchise. I know they do stupid things all the time, but it's a storied franchise. It was a great franchise. I actually like the Browns as a franchise uh, because they're a long historical. Look, Jim Brown, like this is a great franchise. This decision to give this guy a guaranteed of $230 million based on this is the most cynical, disgusting thing I've seen in sports in, uh, in a generation. Yeah, and it's not only the $230 million deal over five years. It's allowing him to renegotiate the first year. So when he is suspended, the financial, the financial impact goes from being significant at about right. you know, $12 million to being modest at about a couple hundred grand. But I, I like what you said because anybody who is a sports fan or just anybody who pays attention to any business at all understands one key component of successful businesses. They must engage in organizational excellence as a starting point to have a chance at, of achieving great things. When you don't, you are, you are destined to fail. And so the Cleveland Browns may have thought they, they solved their quarterback problem in acquiring Deshaun Watson. Yeah, he's a top five, maybe a top seven quarterback in this league when he's playing well. But what you have done is you have sacrificed your values and your culture, and that never goes well. So I suspect, like we've seen so many times in the past, well, Deshaun Watson is young and he's talented. When you make a deal with the devil, it doesn't work out. This is not going to work out. The cle- I just want people to understand something. There was a moment in time in the 1960s when the Cleveland Browns and Jim Brown was there and they recruited a guy called Ernie Davis, known as the Express. He never got to play because, of course, he died at 23 from leukemia. But he was selected by the Redskins. The Redskins were racist. And the Cleveland Browns took him. And they took Ernie Davis. They stood for something. It made me like the Browns. Look, I like teams that stand for something. 
And now they stand for the very opposite. Ernie Davis's legacy is being besmirched. I mean, you look around sports generally, there are organizations that win and continue to win because they subscribe to this notion that culture and values matter. The Gold State Warriors are a team. The Cardinals are a team. Uh, there are a number of teams of professional sports. The Patriots have that for a long time. Uh, when, you, when you decide to forfeit those cultural values in favor of signing a, you know, a, a shiny toy in like Deshaun Watson, but one that comes morally compromised, you're going to have a lot of difficulty moving forward, I think, with any level of credibility with your players and your fan base and your stakeholders. But that's what the Browns have done. And this is a driven league in the NFL. To succeed, you've got to have a quarterback, people to protect the quarterback, people to rush the quarterback. So the Browns get that. But sometimes you make a move that will define your legacy as far as management goes and not in a good way. And this is one of those moves, I think. What else is going on with you? Uh, I got about a minute. I love our, our chats. Uh, I got 40 seconds. What, what's your haiku on Hockey Canada? I've got two young boys, and I've got to register them for the upcoming hockey season today or tomorrow, and kind of disgusted by the whole thing. The Hockey Canada brand has been so tarnished, so irreparably harmed. The only way I believe you can move forward is by completely cleaning house and bringing in new people, credible people that are known to the Canadian public because Hockey Canada's mandate is clear look out for the best yeah. interests of kids. And they haven't. I, I'm with you, by the way, and your fees are going to that. Eric Macromella, you are the best. I really appreciate it, my friend. We'll be right back. Nickel and diming the conversations. Literally, it's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. What is the fix for health care? Ontario says the fix for health care is their plan to stay open. They know that there's going to be more people hospitalized with uh, respiratory illnesses, maybe COVID. And basically, they say we're going to have a healthcare system stability and recovery. We're going to add healthcare workers. We're going to free up beds. And uh, they put out this 18 page document. And long term care residents are going to be transferred to alternative homes, apparently. So let's say you're a senior patient waiting to be placed in an LTC. Well, you can go, you might be transferred to an alternative facility. Now, the question here is, and and I'm going to give you some clips here. Here's Sylvia Jones right now. Uh, The health minister says uh, that surgeries are going to be performed by private providers as well, though they'll still be covered by OHIP. Listen to this. Where infrastructure is currently in place, that is always going to be the fastest route to ensure that we can put um, more people through and get the services they need. So, okay, it's going to cover for exam uh, and registration fees for internationally trained nurses. They're going to send patients, as I said, to long-term care homes. Here's the long-term care minister, Paul Calandra, says it's about getting the people 
into the best place at the right time? Ultimately, no. We are not going to be forcing anybody out of a home, but the changes do allow, or out of a hospital, excuse me, but the changes do allow us to continue that conversation, to explain to the uh, uh, to somebody who is in a hospital why they can, their needs can be met uh, uh, in, a, uh, in a long-term care home. Is this the beginning of private health care? Sylvia Jones was asked that. Here's what she said. Health care will continue to be provided to the people of Ontario through the use of your OHIP card. We, we see the value of having some of those independent health facilities that have existed in the province of Ontario for literally decades to take some of the pressure off of our health care partners. Let me just tell you that, as I said earlier in the program, there's not a bed shortage in Ontario. There's a people shortage to actually staff the beds. There's a nurse shortage. There's a doctor shortage. There's an orderly shortage. Like, we've got beds. Beds aren't like secret microchips that we have to import from Taiwan. We got beds. We got room. We still have people. Is this the answer? Well, Dr. Nahid Dasani is a palliative care physician and health equity lead at uh, the Kensington Health in Toronto. I wanted to get his reaction. He's on the front line. Thanks for your work, Dr. Dasani. I hope you're well. What do you make of the plan to stay open? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And while I'm glad that there was an announcement, because we certainly are dealing with a healthcare crisis, unfortunately, I felt that today's announcement really didn't get at the core of the issues that we are dealing with. Today's announcement, which was a plan to stay stay open, really focused on more beds, which is like really just furniture without staff, and then shifting people around in those beds or moving around people in different furniture. Where was the plan to ensure that there are enough nurses and other health workers to staff those beds. We are having a nursing shortage crisis in our public health care system, and there was very little in today's announcement that addressed the staff that would support patients in these beds. Okay, so, so, okay, so what is needed then? Yeah, absolutely. I think what, what we really need is a plan to support our health workers and particularly nurses as we are dealing with a nursing crisis in our public health care system. What we need is a plan to support nurses with proper wages, to support them with permanent jobs, with benefits, and repealing Bill 124, which is essentially wage restraint legislation and is a major reason we are in the situation we're in in seeing many nurses who have been in the public system moving towards private for-profit agencies because they pay better. Um, a reminder to your listeners that we can still have the expansion of private for-profit health care, even if it's still covered by your OHEP card. And that's what's so concerning here. I just want to remind people, uh, there's a lot of debate about this thing in 2019 when the Ford government passed Bill 124, which essentially said that uh, wage increases can be limited to what? I think a maximum of 1% total compensation for three years. And so nurses and nurse practitioners and RNs regarded as wage suppression. And the government says that they're protecting a sustainable uh, health care. Isn't that, is that a fair description of it, a non-biased description? I think that's a fair description of what's happening and what it's led to is demoralization of the health worker workforce. Many um, healthcare workers are covered by the Bill 124 and especially nurses and nurses have felt insulted and rightfully so. And what's happened at the same time is that there's been the expansion of um, these private for-profit agencies providing temporary nursing. And what we've seen is public dollars siphoning out of the public healthcare system into these private pockets, these private um, agencies 
employees. And so on a, on a floor in a hospital, you can have a nurse making you know, something like $60 an hour working beside a nurse who's making $120 an hour. And at this rate, you know, essentially this will bankrupt healthcare in Ontario if this is not addressed. And we really didn't see action in today's announcement that talked about that. What do you make about this notion that um, there will be private clinics will be able to do surgeries but paid for by OHIP? Uh, Sylvia Jones saying, you know, we uh, will uh, always ensure that OHIP is how services will be um, provided. But some are concerned that the role of private clinics is changing. What's your sense, Doc? I'm, I'm glad we're getting into this, Evan, because, again, the devil is in the details. Um, we must remember that we can still have the expansion of private for-profit health care in a system where you present an OHIP card and it's free to you, quote-unquote, at that point in time. What we need to better understand is will Ontario's expanded surgical clinics that they're talking about, these private clinics, will they be for-profit or not-for-profit? My understanding is that these independent health facilities, which refers to non-hospital sites that perform medically necessary operations that are typically done in hospital, that the vast majority of them are for profit. And so what I'm really trying to get at is it just seems like they are expanding private for profit um, sites outside of hospitals that will deliver these surgeries. Um, You know, I I know that we have tons of evidence and I know that, you know, this has been talked about a lot about the uh, way that for profit healthcare does not really meet the needs uh, of people anywhere it's implemented. Just look at long term care during COVID. You know, thousands and thousands of debt, people dead in long-term care here in Ontario during the pandemic, with the vast majority being in for-profit LTC homes. We need more investments in our public health care system to save our public health care system. I wonder what other provinces are going to do. Is this the model? You know, and that, that, that's going to be the question. Is this the model and where does it go? And, and do we know the details? As you say, the devil's in the details. Dr. Naid Dasani, palliative care physician and health equity lead at the Kensington Health in Toronto. Doc, uh, thanks for your work and, and, and thanks for your, your um, insight into this about what's going on from your perspective. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you too. Take care. Thank you. These are big discussions that we've got to have. And, we, and we've got to have them... Thoughtfully. So what I will do is open the phones. And I want to ask you what your solution to healthcare crises is this. You don't have to talk specifically about this. Because you may not know about it in detail yet. But 1-855-633-1010, one 1010 or 71010. Is there a role for private healthcare? Yes or no? You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. So Ontario's doing a, has a plan for health care. Privately delivered services paid for by OHIP will cover. We've heard that. They're going to try to move people to new locations. We're not sure what surgeries will be 
actually go to private providers. We're not sure if they'll be paid more. We're not sure what wages. We just have no idea. I know there's more beds, but they need more nurses. What do you think? Now, you can discuss that if you want. You phone me. You know, this is a pretty new idea. We don't have a lot of details. But is there a role for private health care now? Do we need to just open that up? one 633 or 71010 Or do you just think, yeah, I can afford it, let's do it. But what about the people that can't? Or is this a fundamental value of our society? You don't want to pay for, your, pay for things with your credit card. You're already paying for drugs or dental work. Go to the United States. Get a job. Your employer may not have health care. You've got to pay a 20% premium. Dylan, what's up? I don't know if I okay, Chris, and I just can't hear Dylan yet, so maybe our listeners oh, can. Oh, hey, Evan, yeah, I can hear you now. Okay, okay, go for it, Dylan. Yeah, I mean, I very, I very passionately believe in our socialized medicine uh, system. I mean, uh, and and I'm a big time right winger too, you know. But I mean, I, I think it's so great for our country that uh, the health of the poor man is is considered to be equal to that of the rich man, and I think that goes in. I, I think it. it it's a huge part of our social cohesion of our society, and we don't need to be eroding it by allowing private health care into the mix. And this is being done, I believe, very deliberately for a couple of reasons. And one being that people like the rich people, the affluent liberal type, neoliberal type, they, they don't want to wait in line with the peasants anymore. Uh, and so, so this is a great excuse for them to bring in private health care so that they can just go and, and, and pay their money and butt in line in front of everybody else. And not only that, but I believe that I've been saying this for years that liberals and neoliberals, they've been, they've been looking to undermine and destroy our health care system. Because but, but sorry, so well, just when you say liberals, like okay, let, let me, I'm just trying to clarify. You, you know you're talking about, in this case, the Ford yeah, government. Yeah, so, Ford so, is not a conservative. If, oh, if that's what I'm trying to So you don't consider the Ford government, even though they're a PC government, you're saying they're actually not conservatives. You're right. saying he's a traitor. He's a traitor. Ask anybody who's actually right-wing, they will tell you the same thing. If he was a conservative, he would be trying to conserve the system. He would pay those nurses a reasonable wage. I mean... I, I'm just trying to ask you, like, I, again, I, I'm, I'm not trying to... I'm just trying to clarify here, so just give me a second here. Okay, not, okay. Because I want, I want your point here. I'm not trying to debate with you. I'm just trying to understand it. Doug Ford, you think, is not a conservative, but you are a conservative and Doug Ford's not. And and as a conservative, you want a publicly funded health care with increased wages. What about that is, in your view, uh, conservative? I'm just trying to understand because that's publicly paid for. That's government funded health care, which is fine. I just want to know under what definition is that a conservative policy? Because that's our that's the traditions of our country. You know what I mean? In terms of our socialized system our socialized medicine. So it's like we want to conserve that. <laughs> we don't want to liberalize it by, by allowing uh, private enterprise into it to, to start making money off it. It doesn't make any sense as to why they can't deliver the same services for uh, better or equal prices hmm. than, than, the, than the private system. So, and again, uh, you know... Because usually, they, you know, want, and I understand conservatism yeah. has, like, you know, the Edmund Burke conservative is talking about conserving values, which I understand that, but usually conservatism is talking about smaller government, let the market determine That's the individual. That's, That's not, not you. Me. Okay, I, okay so... Not, I don't, I don't even necessarily. Look, I don't want. I don't want to get too off topic here. But I, I don't necessarily claim to be a conservative. I'm. A, I consider myself a right winger and very much a socialist. Okay, and I believe okay. in our social, our system of socialized medicine. Okay, and we don't need to be undermining it. And again, again, I think that they on a, on an ideological level they want to undermine our system. 
And because, again, it goes back to our traditions. Our, our system was started by a Christian preacher, Tommy Douglas. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, uh, I, I believe very passionately in our system, and, and I don't want to see it eroded. And, again, this is all part of a bigger plan that they have. And this okay. is just the first step in terms of chipping away at things, I believe. Dylan, I uh, appreciate the call. Okay. okay. Uh, and, 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 and these are we got to listen to a lot of these voices. Um, let me go with Mike. You say you are in healthcare. What's up? Yes. Uh, hi there. Can you hear me? I got, I got you, Mike. Mike. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I was a respiratory therapist for uh, 22 years or so, and now I have an office job uh, at the hospital. Um, I just wanted to, before I talk about privatization, I just wanted to say I wish you would also include sometimes the literally thousands of allied healthcare professionals in the hospitals that you, you, you seem to leave out a lot of the time. Um, I know you're not doing it on purpose because nurses are in the news all the time, but we, you know, the rest of us deserve some representation too. Uh, that said, um, I don't think that now is the time to be privatizing anything. If there were a glut of people looking for jobs and there was no, not enough jobs in the private, uh, sorry, in the public system, then yeah, maybe you can expand some privatization to allow for a little more, uh, a little more breadth in the system. But at a time when we have literally thousands and thousands and thousands of open postings and nobody to fill them, all this privatizing is going to do is create more mm. job openings, which is going to rob the public system even more. You're just going to end up making the problem worse. Worse. It makes no sense whatsoever. They got to repeal Bill 124. Start paying people what they're worth. Start treating people with respect, all of us. Then maybe this system might get back on track. Okay, first of all, thanks for the call. Thanks for your work in the system. And you're not wrong. You're right. I got to widen out the lens a bit. We are focusing on nurses today because that's what the announcement was. But the healthcare system has lots of practitioners in it. And good call. Mike, I like it. And I like being called out like that. Good. That That is, uh, um, you're doing good work there. Um uh, let me read one. Evan, between the teachers and the nurses alone, and in spite of a staffing crisis, how the hell is a broke province supposed to pay for it? How? Easy for the anti-government unions to scream. Unionized workers get ha- higher paid than private. I haven't had a raise in years, and I'm hovering below the poverty line, or at the poverty line. Well, look, that wages, I understand there's inflation, but when you've got inflation at 7.6% and wages aren't going to increase, people are going to be hit hard. So I don't know if the answer is like, I'm not getting a raise. Why should a nurse not get? Because we need nurses. Because if you get sick, how else are we going to attract people? Now, it's true. It's bloody expensive. And we need to figure out some some solutions here. And that's why we're having these discussions. Sonny, what's up? Sonny, I'm, I'm great. What's on your mind today? Well, I couldn't have expressed it more eloquently than the gentleman... Uh, Mike, he is spot on, because that was my point. If we are short of nurses, why are we introducing a private system that is going to require nurses? And where is those nurses going to come from? So we have to understand this. Like the first caller also said to you, this is the deliberate attempt to destroy the healthcare system. Because if you look at from the get-go, they destroyed the lint system which was an organized system of providing health care. Most probably not adequately 100%, but it solved some, a great portion of our problems. So what we are now sitting with is we are going to now disable the health care system, and then we're going to say, 
we are going to need nurses. How, how much sense does that make? Just answer me, please. How much sense well, does well, it make? Well, I think, Sonny, your point is a very valid one, which is this. In a scarcity market, creating a, or, or saying we'll use a private system and pay for it with OHIP, in a private system that is already paying nurses more, we know that's happening, how are we going to create and support a competitive market with higher wages there, incentivizing nurses to go there? Who the hell is going to work in the public system then? You're not exactly. wrong. Sonny, uh, I appreciate the that. Listen, smart call. Thanks, Sonny. Um, boy, this is um, lots of text. So keep the text firing in. Uh, I'm going to take a break. Remember yesterday I said we're going to have that free diver, Arnaud Gerald, who broke the world record, a world record breaker for free diving. He held his breath for three minutes and 34 seconds. Well, try to hold your breath for the next about four minutes. We'll take a break. You can hold your breath that long. A world record holder joins us next. We go deep. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I am fascinated with the sport of free diving. Just let me tell you, these are people that dive into the ocean and descend, get this, the world record, 120 meters. They hold their breath, in this case, for three minutes and 34 seconds. People have died doing this. This is the th- vertical blue competition held in the Bahamas. This, this is the human being at their finest. And the world record holder is a French free diver who broke the deepest free dive record in the world. He wore bifins. He went down for 120 meters. Now he's done this seven times, but this is the, and his name is Arnaud Gérald, and he joins me now. Arnaud, I am uh, it's so honored to be here. Most people listening you. will not know what free diving is. What is it? I just hold my breath and I try to go deeper than I can just with my fin. I have a bifin. And I I come down with a bifin, and I come up just with a bifin. I just use my legs. And how the like I scuba dive, and anybody listening's you know dive down in a pool or a lake. Their ears, you know, they can't equalize. How do you equalize that deep? I I just have a, a normal technique, a technique we can learn with some uh, free diver. And I just equalize a lot, a lot for for these depths. When you okay, so now tell me, how did you get into this, and and what what you know, like you got to hold your breath. It's it's a very dangerous sport. How did you get into it? I I start free diving, but with my dad in the south of France in Marseille. It's really a natural uh, part of uh, France, and. Uh, at seven, I was so scared to, to have a mask and to come on the water because it wasn't in the beach. It was just uh, on the rock and 
it was really impressive to me because uh, when you come in the water, you have a lot of imagination. You imagine shark, monster. And every weekend we go on the water with my dad and I was feeling more free than scared. I was imagining me flying like Peter Pan and I just built a, a really deep connection with the sea and with my imagination. And at 16 years old, I discovered just pure free diving. One breath, going deep and going up just in one breath. And uh, at this point I was... Uh, I have dyslexic and I have uh, hypersensibility when I was um, when I was kids. Right. And I when I come in the water at this depth, I just opened my eyes and I just learned about me. And freediving was a school for me to learn about myself, to understand better myself. Right? And it was uh, really powerful. And after I decided to trying to become freediver, and uh, now we are. It's an amazing story. Uh, you're 26. You uh, and I'm speaking to Arnaud Giral, the French freediver who broke the world record for the deepest freedive in the world. I just want people to realize what 120 meters is. Uh, you're talking about 393.7 feet. Okay. Yeah. I, I just don't understand this. Is there? Were you concerned you could die under there? Like, what if you pass out? Yeah, it's a, it's a scary thing because I, of course, it's an extreme sport. Uh, because we don't breathe and uh, down we have a lot of pressure in our body. My lung is the size of an orange down. But at the end, uh, it's really stable because I just take a breath, I go down, I feel the pressure, but I didn't feel any pain or any urge to breathe. And I don't have a current or it's not like the, the same extreme thing like a mountain. In mountain, the element can change really fastly. And the water is really stable. And uh, of course, I don't start the season with 120. I start the season with 10 meters, 20 meters, 30. And the progression is like four months of progression to, right. to reach these depths. But, but I mean, you got to hold your breath for three minutes and 34 seconds. If you're 60 feet down and you just need to breathe, what happens? Like, what if you did pass out? Is there someone there to save you? Yeah, I can breathe. It's not like running or basketball. I, when I arrive down, I can say, okay, I'm tired. I need to, to take a, a stop. I need to, to come up. But uh, if something happens at these depths, um, we have a drone uh, with some uh, cameras uh, on the life. And the safety team um, put the counter ballast and my lanyard come up really fastly. And I joined the surface. Um, on the last 30 meters, this is the most dangerous part of the freediving. Down, it's okay because I just do one way. But when I do one way and the way up, I put I have a lot of distance. Um, and the 30 last meters, the safety come to me just to see if everything is good. Right. If something not happened really well, it can catch me and crash the surface have, have you ever passed out doing it and just like almost drowned no i'm really happy to to say today uh i i reached seven world record without any blackout because in the past i when i discovered freediving every freediver told me i know a good freediver is a freediver make a blackout because after he know his limit but i say but it's it's so hard because you touch the such a die you know it's a really hard thing yeah. to, to reach the limit. and i just 
going this way to say, I can make my dive really safe without blackouts. And now just, we are. Like, like I've watched other free divers blackout. It's so scary. But yet here you are, three minutes, 34 seconds, holding your breath. I don't know. Then you're coming up. Here's what I don't understand. Like, I'm a scuba diver. I've never been down. I just want people to know. Very few scuba divers in the world will ever go down 393. Like, you go down, you know, 80 feet, 100 feet, even more. That's big dive. You're going down mm-hmm. 393. But when I surface from, like, 90 feet down, okay, yeah. I got to stop and depression, right? I, I have to stop and let my body. How do you surface so fast and not get the bends? Yeah, exactly. This is the most, uh, to me, this is the most uh, coolest thing of freediving because we just take one breath and uh, the volume on our lungs didn't change on the dive. When you practice uh, scuba diving, like, like you, you breathe uh, down, you breathe. Uh, right oxygen or you breathe something uh, to, to breathe and uh, how our system just the volume on my lungs just compress and decompress this is why I don't have uh, a bubble on my uh, mm. blood I didn't need uh, decompression that's amazing and that's why we, I want people to understand his lungs become like the size of an orange as you say that's like it's insane yeah. the pressure I don't know how so are you, now that you've got the world record of 120 meters, 393.7 feet, three minutes and 34 seconds, was there a moment, I'll know, where you said, I think I can even beat that? Yeah, it's um, an amazing sensation because uh, it wasn't possible in the past in the mind of any freediver to reach 120 meters in bifin in this discipline because it's a really hard discipline. But now we are, we break the limits. And uh, after that, you just need to, I think I need to continue to, to beat my, my workload, but oh. not this year. For me, it's enough. But in the most important thing on my spot is to, can, it's to have the power to say stop at the good moment. And now I'm enough for this year. <laughs> yeah, well, you better be careful, but... But as you say, your breathing technique must be incredible. People are texting me, is it clear or dark? I know it's, it gets darker down there, but it's pretty st- clear. But um, know, Gérald, I, I just want to say it's a real honor to talk to you. You have, you so have proved something that the human being is more capable of doing something than anyone ever thought. Uh, please stay safe. Please keep inspiring people. Uh, th- and congratulations on the world record, the deepest free dive in the world. You are a remarkable human being, Arnaud. Merci. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. It was a really good pleasure. Yeah, my God. Folks, that is so cool. I am just, like, I got Dan Riskin on the other side. We're going to talk about droughts and heat waves, but I got to talk about this. Like, imagine what he does. He holds his breath and he goes down. Human beings are incredible. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I feel like this is going to be a reunion with one of my besties. It is time to risk it all with Dan Riskin. 
it's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is it's a dream, man. The headline is risking it all. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. Riskin it all. My old friend, how's it going? Oh, good now that you're back. I've I've missed you, man. How's your summer been? My summer has been great. I've been trying to get fit, doing the running. You know, at, at our vintage, I, you know, the, the fitter you try to get, the worse you feel. That's the way I am. Yes. The more exercise I do, the more I feel like a truck hit me in the morning. It's brutal. It, aging really does stink. Just it really stinks. does. But I think there's really no way around it. You just If you don't do the running and you don't feel like you got right. hit by a truck, then you start to look like you got hit by a truck. There, so you got to stay on it. There's a guy at work that I work with here at CTV. He's the greatest guy, and he doesn't do any exercise. And <laughs> and he, he looks at me every day. He's like, hey, I noticed you're limping. You're okay. And I'm like, I went for a run this morning. I worked out. And he's like, you know, you're always so sore. I never do exercise, and I feel great. I, you might be doing the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's wisdom there. I mean, you only uh, live once, so you got to pick how you spend your time. But you you get that you get that high, right? When you go running or when you work out, or when I like, eat some gummies. No, no, well, no. Sure. I... <laughs> that's the, that's the easier way. That's the easier that's way the to easier get that high. No, that that running high like that that yeah, the endorphins, yeah. and that's I find it's the funniest thing. If I don't get a run in for a couple of days, I start to get really grumpy. And my wife looks at me and she's like, "You know, if you went for a run, I'm like, I know if I went for a run, but and then I go for the run and I feel great, and then I'm mad because she was right, and I, you know, I just I should have just done it earlier. You know, so, I really my mental health really benefits from the run. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that, Dan. Mental health for me, 100 uh, percent exercise. If I don't have it, I can't do my job. I'm just not as happy a person. But I have this theory that, you know, how when you get out of shape, you know, you just stop doing it for a while for whatever reason. I always think that there's this two weeks where you are dragging your body like a dead weight sled to try to get up, work out or go for a run or do some exercise or stretch. And you just dread it. But then if you can cross over the two weeks and you do it steadily, then the sled moves forward and it kind of your body's kind of drags you. It's like, hey, man, I need this. Yeah. You got to serve me. And then it's kind of dragging you. And that's where you want to be. You want to be right. so your body's like, hey, you got to get going. You're jumping. And my wife will say to me, you need to go running, like get out. Yeah. And my yeah, body's saying it too. And But it's hard, right? Because, you know, your, your natural propensity is to, to not want to do anything. Um, yeah. I, by the way, I had this guy on the world record holder who broke the record for free diving. He just joined Arnaud Gerald. Ooh. 120 meters, held his breath for three minutes, Ooh. 34 seconds, 393.7 feet. Can you imagine free diving? So scary. I mean, I you see the videos, right? They come back up to the surface and, oh, their ears have popped or like there's blood in their breath. And like just, the body is not meant to do those things. Those people are absolutely just pushing the limit of what a human body can do. I mean, listen, I love holding my breath at the bottom of a pool as much as anybody. That's great. And that's all fun. And I particularly am obsessed with trying to blow bubble rings. Do you ever do that? Jeez. You, so is, when... What? Dolphins no. do this too. Okay, okay all right. So okay, welcome, welcome to my world. We Every go. time I go underwater, I got to get yeah. a mask on so it'll plug my nose for me and I can see underwater. So one of those like snorkeling masks. You get down to the bottom of the pool and then if you point your face upward and you push air out, just go, Puh. Yeah. If you do it just right, instead of a bunch of bubbles coming out, a perfect ring emerges from your face and then it goes up towards the surface and it maintains its perfection, spinning at the edges. And it's like this, it looks like a smoke ring from from Gandalf. And if you really, if you have still water, you got to like kind of get underwater without disturbing the pool too much. But if you can get a good one, it'll go all the way up to the surface like this and it grows as it goes up. It's so fun and it's so hard. And it's it's like, it's all I can think about when I get in the pool. So my wife- I am doing that. I am, that is fantastic. 
you got it. I mean, I'm sure there's YouTube videos all about it, but dolphins even do this too. They'll blow bubble rings and then swim through them. They're they're really good at it. And so I, I try to channel my inner dolphin. You know, for you know, me, that's... I, first of all, I love this. I'm not sure if this is the best conversation I'm having as an adult or when I was younger. I feel like this is like a stoner conversation that you know you might have had in universe. It's like, <laughs> well, hey man, do you ever rings. blow those yeah. rings in the, in the water? It's like, no, we <laughs> should do it. But there's no pool. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, speaking of water, um, I, I want to talk about the droughts going on, Dan Riskin. Oh, the extreme yeah. heat, the melting glaciers, but all over the world, this is happening. And what's happening, I mean, I don't want to get into the climate change, although I think it's important. But what's happening is shipwrecks and dead bodies and villages and ancient things are being revealed all over the world. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, as the water level drops from these droughts especially in europe right now your things are being exposed that have been underwater and thus hidden um so there's a, a great big nazi ship in italy in the river po that's been well underwater and totally invisible except now it's emerged out of the water um and there are a whole bunch of these things lake mead of course in the southwestern u.s uh is having a terrible drought uh that that water level is very low and one of the things that emerged there was a barrel with a dead body in it so oh my god the really mob knows. used to sink people in lake me and now it's yeah, coming to the well, surface there you go there you go and so you know that's that's coming up skeletons in the closet or skeletons in the barrel as it may be starting to emerge there so you know cold cases may be solved with dna technology who knows but this is part of it and i think the what really drives it home is if you look uh in germany uh along the rhine and the elba rivers uh they have these things called hunger stones and it's uh Hungersteine, yeah, I think, if you'll pardon my terrible German. Nice. And these are these stones that are underwater most of the time. But when they emerge, it's because of a drought. And that is always followed historically by starvation and failed crops. And so there are etchings on those stones that say things like, if you're reading this, things are not good. So there's one inscription uh, from the Czech Republic uh, from 1616. And it says, if you see me, weep. And and basically what it's saying is like, if this rock is exposed, you know that you're probably going to starve in the next few years, right? And so it's a really scary sort of ominous thing. And a lot of these things last surfaced in 2018 uh, because there was a drought then. But this current drought in Europe could be the worst in 500 years, uh, according to some experts. And so, uh, you know, we, of course, have a lot of sort of uh, trade and things that can help mitigate the worst of these kinds of, uh, you know, you're not dependent on the, the fields immediately adjacent to yourself anymore. If you live in Germany, you can have food shipped to you from other places. But it's certainly a, a warning that those those landscapes are not operating the way they typically do. Talk about a haunting thing. These hunger stones, like if you could read me weep, it's yeah. like holy machina. It's like that tap on the shoulder from the ghosts of history. It's like, do you know what's happening? Literally history talking to us, literally history giving us a pretty bloody scary warning. Yeah, it really is. I mean, uh, for me, I thought about like, if you can read this, you're driving too close to me or something like that. Yeah, like, it's, right. It, it, but it's the same idea, right? Like if you're reading this, something bad has happened. You should not be reading this or, or something's gone wrong. And so the idea that these these landmarks have been buried underwater uh, for you know hundreds of years, just sitting there quietly, and, and there are initials on them, the people that wrote them, uh, that, you know, who knows what those initials stand for. Now, some people say, oh, that's lost. proof that cl climate change is not, you know, it's happened 500 years ago. That's not true. This is different. Like yeah. the United well, States, literally the southwest of the United States is drying up. Yeah. 
No, it's, I mean, those, there have been droughts in the past. Absolutely. It's just that you can look for broad scale patterns. That's why you don't just sort of like look at what the weather is today. You look at the graph over time and you can definitely see that the world is getting hotter, that droughts are becoming more extreme, that storms are getting bigger. And it's exactly the kinds of patterns that have been predicted for a long time by climate models. And so it's not like a random, Ooh, Oh, it's going in this direction. Didn't expect that. But now that it is, I guess I'll just follow that. It's that people have been saying, you're going to start seeing these kinds of trends and they're going to look like these kinds of numbers and we're seeing exactly what's been predicted uh, by these models and right. so uh, by the way they, to believe them. The, the chinese are practicing a practice called cloud seeding do you know that to start droughts they're trying to seed clouds to induce rainfall that's what they're yeah. doing so, yeah and, we could talk I mean, about i know we got to take a break but i will talk like how do you actually induce that i want to talk about that because sure. cloud seeding is crazy but also there's kind of a weird Jurassic Park thing going uh, on. They've uh, yeah. resurrected an animal that's been extinct since 1936, the Tasmanian tiger. So we're going to take a break. We're going to risk it all with Dan Riskin. He's back. He's fit. He's sore. He's brilliant. <laughs> he's and he's old. got the story of the resurrecting of an extinct animal and how to seed clouds to induce rain. Is that crazy or is that the future? Like... Dan, I don't even know what the hell we're living in, but the world's getting crazier. All right, so Jurassic Park when we come back with Dan Riskin. Stay with us, folks. This is getting just starting to get good. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the big show. We are risking it all with Dan Riskin, who is, of course, the mad genius of science, the uh, CTV science and technology specialist, the bat expert. Um, We're talking droughts. We're talking resurrection. Wow. I I mean, this is a very biblical day. Um, the Chinese are doing something that the Israelis have done, the UAE has done, the Americans have done. They're seeding clouds. They're like shooting stuff, like particles up into the sky to either extend the life of clouds and make rain or to create rain. Um, what are they doing and does it work? Yeah, it well, it does work, and but what it does, I mean, you can't make more water get up into the air, but when you've got clouds and the, 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 you have some idea when you want the rain to come out of them, or instead of just staying up in the clouds, you fly an airplane through, and that airplane releases a little bit of chemicals. Uh, silver iodide is one that's used, uh, potassium iodide, uh, other things like that. And th- those, those chemicals, it's a very small amount, and they don't really have any negative impact on the ecosystem, so that's been tested. Uh, but once that happens, those become uh, these nuclear sites for ice to form so in other words it's like you've got the, the it's ready to make rain it's ready to start falling but it just needs something to to get that chemical start that that little it, it's almost like a super cooled liquid that you have to mm. sort of sort of crystallize and then once the crystal first appears then it sort of takes off on its own but it's been waiting for that activation and, energy. and it so, kind of works right like i like it yeah. can improve rain from like 10 to 30 percent i read 
Yes. And so the Chinese now are doing this. And the thing about people get freaked out by this one. People don't like the idea of cloud seeding. They think that, you know, the clouds are going to rain when the clouds want to rain and don't start playing God with that stuff. And this uh, this theme of playing God certainly comes into our next topic as well about bringing animals back from extinction. But, you know, it there, it's interesting because a lot of times a technology is available and it works and it's safe and it's okay to use. But the the public backlash against it is such that you really have to ask yourself whether it's in the best interest of science or scientists to be pushing that agenda if it's worth the cost, right? I mean, when it comes to things like vaccines, you know, a lot of people push back against vaccines, but it's worth it to have that fight because vaccines do work and they save lives. And by helping get people vaccinated, you save more lives than just the people who are vaccinated because you decrease the amount that a virus or or a, an illness is in the population. So that fight's worth having. But with cloud seeding, I feel like it really, it, it, it attracts a lot of people who really don't like it. And so uh, I wonder whether it's really worth all that, the, the sort of negative press that scientists get. Well, perhaps we can talk about the playing God and the resurrection of the Tasmanian tiger, who I, I, we thought was extinct in 1936. What ha what is going on here? Well, it is. it has been extinct in 1936, but it is the Bigfoot of Australia. So people see it all the time and report it, but like it's always a grainy video and you look at it carefully and you're like, that's a dingo. But this is a thing that looks like a dog that went extinct in 1936. The last one died in a zoo after they'd hunted them all to extinction and it died unceremoniously. They threw it in the garbage after it died. It, conservation biology just wasn't as much a thing back in the day. And uh, this thing, what's, what's amazing about the thylacine as it's its proper name is thylacine. It's also called the Tasmanian tiger because it had stripes or Tasmanian wolf because it looks like a dog. It just, the thing that's amazing is how much it looks like a dog. This is a kangaroo's cousin that has converged on dogs. And so because it's under similar selective pressures through evolution, its body's been shaped into the shape of a dog because a dog shape is perfect for what a dog does. And this thing was doing the same thing in Australia and became very dog-like. So it has the, the, the limbs that you would expect, the pads on the, on the feet and the, the, dimensions of the legs are the same it's got that long snout it's got the ears that are up on top that look just like a husky or something like that i mean it really looks like a dog but it's not a dog at all it's one of the most amazing examples of convergent evolution you could ever imagine and so this thing went extinct in the 30s people have really missed it because it played an important role in ecosystems in australia not to mention tasmania which is where they last lived and uh people want it back and so the people who are you know who have the technology to to do dna manipulation and stuff like that are talking about whether they could apply this, whether they could take the DNA from pelts and things and specimens of these Tasmanian tigers that are 100 years old or more and get the DNA sequence and then copy that DNA sequence and put it into a living marsupial's uh, cells and then clone those cells, get those cells to grow and then make a little embryo and then put that embryo into a mom, a, some other marsupial that is able to carry it and then grow it a little bit and uh, see if they can make a Tasmanian tiger come back from the dead. It's it's possible. All the steps should work. They work on paper. It's just right. nobody's done it. Now, if they do it, what else could they bring back? Well, there's, I mean, some of the people that are on this grant are also on the grant that's supposed to bring mammoths back. So mammoths are one one thing. But the, the thing that makes this hard is you don't just like take the DNA sequence and then make a dinosaur like in Jurassic Park. You can't just, you can't just do that. First of all, 
old DNA usually has big gaps in it. So you're, 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 you've got a gappy DNA sequence and you got to figure out what to fill those gaps with. You could fill it with whatever the closest living cousin of it has and, and hope that works, but it, you might not get it right. But the really hard part of this is that once you have that embryo, it needs to grow in the right environment. Mom matters. And so you couldn't take a dog and grow it inside a cat's body. Uh, because cats and dogs are different enough that the the stuff that the mom would give that growing uh, embryo would not be the right chemistry. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be the right signals for it to grow properly. And so you need to have a very close cousin for that to work. And the closest living cousin of the Tasmanian wolf is a tiny mouse-sized marsupial called a fat-tailed dunnert. They look, it looks like a mouse. It looks like a little jumping mouse. They're cute as all get out, but they're marsupials. Another example of convergent evolution, not a mouse. It's a marsupial. And so their plan is to get that little ball of Tasmanian wolf cells and then grow it inside this mouse-sized marsupial. And if it were a normal mammal, that would never work because it would very quickly become too big and it would, you know, kill the mother by growing too big. But the thing about marsupials is they give birth after like three weeks and then the, the animal lives in the pouch and feeds on milk. That's what sets marsupials apart from other mammals. And so even though the embryo of the Tasmanian wolf will ultimately be way bigger than its mom, if this works, it can grow inside mom's womb because it's only for a couple of weeks until it's just you know the size of a grain of rice or something like that. So when could we know if they're going to get this thing? Well, the, the thing about this technology, especially with re relevance to mammoths, that's where it's usually discussed, is we're always like two years from it happening. It's been like that for 20 years. Right. So it, we're always just two years. And so right now we're seeing a lot of press and, and the people that sort of have promised to do this are getting a ton of interviews and you're seeing it everywhere. But really, I, I mean, it's very hard to estimate when this is going to happen. But it does seem like a when not if situation because all the pieces are there and it's like a fun challenge for a smart person to try to take on. And ultimately, somebody's going to be able to do it. And so it's just a question of when that happens and where it happens. And then what do we do once we have that amazing power? A lot of people think it's a terrible use of resources. We have a whole bunch of endangered species. And if you're going to put money into saving things, save the ones that are still alive instead of trying to bring back things from the dead. But that's a debate that uh, that has lots of space. That's why more money goes to like male, curing male pattern baldness and a lot of childhood diseases, right? right? Like, like this is what it is. Right. Uh, Dan Riskin, you are the best. I love what this is like a double dose of Dan because it was the first time we've chatted in a dog's age. We're past the dog days of summer, but we're coming into the new season. Welcome back. Stay healthy. Stay well. And uh, I'll talk about science playing God with you anytime. Thank you, my friend. That sounds good. Thanks, man. I always enjoy talking to you. Welcome back. Good to be with you. Yeah, Dan Riskin. Man, I tell you, when I talk to Dan, like my brain kind of is like... Because, you know, this last couple of segments, you know, we got one guy free diving to like 300 and plus feet. And now you've got resurrecting extinct species. It's like, you know, there's a great side of the world. There's a dark side of the world. And we get it all here on the Evan Solomon Show. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, everybody. Take good care. <laughs>